that's a stickiness to the wealth that black people have for the large part of America's history have been excluded from. Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, Revolution? Welcome to the Western Revolution Show. The show for men and the people who love them. Where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corporal. Revolutionaries, what's good? Good. I remember as a child growing up, going over to my friend Robbie's house every day after school as a, as a young boy. And I remember his mother, Renee Gray, always having the Black History flashcards out for us. I learned so much Black history during that time. So much so that I loved it that when I went to undergraduate school at James Madison University, I got a degree in history with a concentration in black studies because I wanted to learn so much about what was going on for us throughout our history. And it permeated who I was and who I am as a black man every day, learning about our struggles, our trials, as well as all of the successes that we have had as a people. We must understand that. We cannot live in our trauma each day. We must understand that we are descendants of kings and queens and that although the trauma of being passed down during slavery, we must also remember the accolades of our ancestors, right? The oldest universities, the knowledge, the bastions of hope that they have passed down to us revolutionaries. So as we embark on February, as we embark, embark on Black History Month, right? Even though that is, the, that is our month, we understand that we celebrate Black history every day. I want you to make sure that you go and find something new about yourself. Find something new about your people. Find something new about us so that you can grow and begin to proliferate. And as the Griots talk about, pass that information on down. On down, on down. And so... <laughs> This is an unusual thing that we'll do today is that, as I said, this is a show for men and the people who love them. And very rarely, I want to say that may have, there have been maybe one, two, maybe three, no more than five women on my show. Five, five women on the show. But, you know, those five women have been amazing and continue to proliferate amazing things in the world. And I said, well, it's Black History Month. And I want to bring the dopest sister that I know on the planet on my show. And I said, hmm, who is that dope sister? And I said, I have to go no further than my sister, my queen, my friend, my confidant, my colleague, the Kelly Saldi, director of strategic partnerships for you guys know Camelback Ventures. What's going on, Kelly? How are you? Hi, Dr. Corporal. <laughs> that, was a, that was an amazing intro. <laughs> hey, you know, as as I say, as, as I say on this show, I get to I get to interview some dope people and you are ordinary because you are dope. <laughs> That's right. There's nothing extraordinary because I bring on dope people and you are just keeping up that lineage of dope, dope people. Look, those of y'all who don't know Kelly Salney, I'm gonna let her tell a little bit about, like, I didn't give you like that big thing because I want you to tell people like, who is Kelly Salney, right? We know the director of strategic partnerships for, right, the dopest venture capital firm by black and brown folks, Black Ventures, but like, who is Kelly Salney? Who is Kelly Solney? Uh, wow. Um, so 
I'm a lot of things, I guess. I'm born and raised in New Orleans. So I'm, a tr- I'm a true NOLA girl, uh, FAMU graduate. Um, so a huge, 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 huge champion of HBCUs. I moved to New York right after college and spent 10, spent 11 years in New York, in which I spent 10 and a half of those at Carol's Daughter. Um, I was literally with Lisa when she first had that one store in Brooklyn. Um, I was part of the team that uh, worked to grow it um, from 3 million to 40 million. We sold it to L'Oreal for over 100 million. And while I'm always so proud of the work I did at Carol's Daughter, I do understand how nuanced that story is um, of seeing a Black woman. Um, unfortunately, how nuanced it is of seeing a Black woman who got to fulfill her dream in such a big way. And that's what led me to my work with Camelback, because I think all entrepreneurs of color, especially Black entrepreneurs, uh, should have that moment and have an opportunity to see uh, their ventures into full potential. That's a, that, that is a beautiful thing, because you think about this, and I want to pull that out for a second. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard her say she worked for Carol's daughter, <laughs> right, as a startup. And as we think about this proliferation of, of black and brown folks and women, women of color, as you said, you were with Lisa Price as at the beginning, growing this beautiful startup that influences how black people, whether they be men or women, take care of themselves. You know, growing that, as you said, to 40 million, what was that like for you to be immersed in that aspect of a startup that grows and then ultimately there's that exit? What was that like for you being a part of that growth and scale of a startup that ultimately became really successful? Yeah, so so let me just say this. When I started at Carol's Daughter, um, I didn't even know what Carol's Daughter was. My mentor at the time... Um, was uh, like, hey, I'm working at this this little small hair company called Carol's Daughter. Uh, do you want to come temp? Because at the time, I was really trying to move to New York. And um, the opportunity, the job that I thought I had lined up, I was supposed to start the same week of, um, that Katrina hit. So I ended up passing up that job. And that kind of, that left me unemployed ultimately. And so my mentor was like, well, I'm working at this small startup. Um, I really can't pay you a lot, but you can come temp while you pursue, you know, a a full-time gig. And I was like, okay, perfect. So um, I started at Carol's Daughter as a temp, really doing more operational things. And and keep in mind, my background was more so in marketing. And I just found myself helping with processes and, you know, improving operations all around. Um, And so in two months, I had kind of added value to the company. And, um they offered me a full-time job. And I, for me, I think the moment I walked in Carol's daughter, that, that warehouse, and it was not sexy at all. Like all my friends were, you know, their big time corporate America jobs. And I was like literally in a warehouse in (laughs) Brooklyn. Um, But it was something so magical about being in there. Like it literally at that time, we weren't even outsourcing anything yet. So at the time it was literally like women, in a big warehouse with big gumbo pots full with like lotions and shampoos. And, you know, upstairs we were shipping orders and like customer service was in this one little part. So it really felt um, really organic, but really, really magical. And even though at that time I really wasn't making a lot of money. And again, 
I didn't even really think about the risk at that time um, that I was, you know, at a startup that may not even uh, might not even succeed. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, um, there were uh, most startups don't succeed. <laughs> most startups don't succeed. I didn't even think about that. That never even resonated. Like I just always knew Carol's daughter was going to be uh, something phenomenal. I always knew it was going to be a culture shifter and I knew I just wanted to be a part of it. So I never, I never thought twice of it, even though everybody told me I was wasting my time and I needed to find (laughs) um, a job in terms of my, my growth there. So the same week that I started Carol's daughter, I started Carol's daughter that Monday. I, I turned 25 that Friday. She's still um, everybody. I, I <laughs> understand that. So I literally grew up at Carol's daughter. I was there 10 and a half years. So I, you know, I tell people that all the time. Like I grew up, I became a woman at Carol's daughter. So um, or I grew into womanhood, I should say, um, at Carol's daughter. And um, my time there, it was the experience was just one of a kind. You know, I mean, I think when you work at a startup, you um you get a, a very acute sense of certain values when it comes to business. So for instance, like I said, my background was in marketing, but I was hired. Well, they created a position for me and it was some, I don't know, some BS title, but ultimately I was doing operations. And it was one of my first lessons that you hire for talent, not for skill sets. You know, like the guy who I shared an office with, he used to be on Wall Street and he didn't even, he, he knew nothing about email or anything. And he was running our e-com business. He actually built a $10 million e-com business, but because he knew numbers so well, he knew how to grow the business. So I think it was one of my first lessons on how you hire. I think it was one of my first lessons in terms of like, you can fail big and still win. Like you can't be afraid of, you. in order to grow, you have to fail. Um, and I think it was just also, one of my biggest, uh, one of my biggest takeaways, I would just say is um, use what you have. You know, like we didn't, when I first started Carol's Daughter, we didn't have a lot of money. We weren't L'Oreal, we weren't Estee Lauder, but we were, com- we felt confident to compete with them. And nothing is more valuable than the culture. Nothing is more valuable than having black women be- behind you. So we felt like we had all the currency in the world um, to push our brand forward. And we did. Kelly, I mean, usually the drop the mic moments are at the end of the show. All right. <laughs> You're a little early. Sorry. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, what you just gave, just what you just gave in the last, particularly in the last five minutes, is a masterclass in entrepreneurship, right? And interesting, the people that are going to hear this across the world, right? And I'm going to make sure that we actually pump this out to, you know, our portfolio that they hear that because one of the key things that you just said is that you hire for talent, right? right? Those those people who have the talent have the ability to be malleable, the ability to use their skill sets to be malleable, to actually create something new and allow themselves to fail and ask at tasks and, and different things. But that allows them to grow because in that, as you said, in those moments of failure, you have the ability to see, well, well how did I fail? Why did I fail? What can I do to be successful? And tell me if I'm wrong, I think many of our entrepreneurs are so afraid of, of, of failure that they will actually not push the envelope. And it sounds like at Camel's, I mean, Carol's daughter, excuse me, trying to, <laughs> Carol's daughter, that you all were not no. afraid to fail. You all pushed the envelope. You had this, 
it seemed like this hubris to say that we are a big enough company that we can take on L'Oreal. We can take on these big cosmetic, you know, profiles, you know, and we're just, we're Carol's daughter. Yeah, I mean, let me just say this. It's not even, there were plenty of times where I'm sure the fear of failure uh, <laughs> um, uh, ran rapid, but it did not stop us from from doing, you know, from launching certain campaigns or products or so forth and so on. So you can feel the failure, but you have to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, but I also will say you also have to um, create a culture that allows failure. Yeah. Uh, and you have to give yourself personally as an entrepreneur the grace to understand that failure is a part of the process. So yes. it's not, you can't avoid, there's no, there's no avoidance of failure if, if the plan is to grow. Yeah. It's going to happen. Um, you need mistakes to learn. So that's going to, and again, I mean, like I said, we've made million dollar <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I don't certainly don't recommend anyone do that. And, and, and let me just also say in terms of, I understand, you know, our, particularly with our entrepreneurs, because they're social entrepreneurs, their failures impact communities in a way that um, some other ventures don't. So I understand why that makes it even scarier. But I, what I, I will hope to do, um, and I know we're going to get into the campaign a little early, I mean, a little later, but I really hope Camelback uh, is still playing a part in building a community that supports entrepreneurs through ups and downs. Um, you know, one of the things that I loathe and I, I actually think I kind of noticed from Carol's daughter, but certainly with Camelback, I hate when like, let's say a small business messes up and then like that somebody just like goes off on the business forever. Like that business is just tainted, especially if it's a black business. It's like black businesses, you know, always do. I hate that. I'm just like, why? I mean, OK, they, they made a mistake. <laughs> it's fine. So I think it's also building a community that supports entrepreneurs and has um, it shows them grace. I think that also is part of helping entrepreneurs grow and not be af afraid of failure. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree, agree with you. And that is the wonderful thing about the work that we do at Camelback is that you know, especially with the creations of these these new platforms and new strategies with our work and your work together, really creating these opportunities for us to help our entrepreneurs, you know, keep the, to, I, I, don't, I don't want to say flatline in this, but to keep the line, right, moving, right, to keep them moving. And so that the highs and lows actually are not as, you know, the lows are not as low, but the highs are even higher, that and people can look back and say, Camelback helped me move through this, right. this time that we were able to support. Yeah, let me just say, you know, at, at Carol's Dawn, I was in operations. So a lot of things I was doing was around um, improving processes, you know, or, or systems. And when you do that, testing is always like, that's your life. You're always testing. And what I used to explain to my team is that you want to test not to see if it's successful. You want to break it. <laughs> you want to break, you want to find all the breaks. That's, that's, that's why you test. That's why you keep practicing. That's why you keep um, going and doing what you're doing because you do want to break things. So you can figure out how to improve and make things better. So that is, you know, again, that is kind of one of my, my takeaways that I cherish most at Carol from Carol's daughter is the value um, and appreciation of breaking things. Right. You know, as I think about all of this information that you are disseminating to the masses, Kelly, I think about, as you talked about, 
this campaign. You know, at Camelback, we talk a lot about generational wealth, right? The the building up of our financial resources, so we have the ability to actually pass that wealth down to our next generations, to our children and their children. But there's another level to this that you have actually really talked about and really actually have really coined and have the ability to proliferate. Because if you're listening to what we've been talking about is that this knowledge that you're giving is just as much, right, a seed, right? It is, a, it is the soil, as our good brother Oliver, Oliver Thomas says, that allows people to grow. So in building generational wealth, we have to think about this generational inheritance, right? And so do me a favor, because I don't think that people really, you know, if I'm sitting around the dinner table, if I'm at the water cooler, if I, if I just say the term generational inheritance, some people may look at me like, corporate, what are you talking about? Define generational inheritance from a Kelly Solney perspective. Right. So, so let me just start by saying, um, I think with generational inheritance, which is more of an ideology than just a set definition, but the idea is really to shift people, to, to shift the framing of the conversation around generation, from generational wealth to generational inheritance. And the reason why um, I think that's important is because I think when we think of generational wealth, we focus solely on um, the monetary value, um, as you said before. And that's important. So I, I'm, let me just start by saying I'm, not, I'm by no means I'm saying that money doesn't matter. <laughs> it does. Um, but the problem is when you think about things only in monetary terms and you don't think about fixing all of the other levers that can um, impact on all the other inequitable levers in in particular that can impact um, how intergenerational money or or inheritances can can move along. That's where the inheritance becomes more importantly. And what I mean by that is money alone can never be the panacea if there are other inequities that are muting, that's muting the impact. Right. And that and that that can we can go into like more micro or macro examples of that. But when I say generational inheritance, I am talking about what we want the next generation to inherit as a whole, in addition to the wealth. So when I started really getting into this idea of inheritance and wealth, um, one, let me just say that it was more than evident that wealth is a direct reflection of inheritance. Right. So we can start there. Now, many successful entrepreneurs, wealthy ones, or wealthy people will say, you know, particularly white men, well, no one gave me anything. Um, you know, I did, I built all of this, <laughs> um, you know, with my bootstraps or what about my bootstraps? Well, that's not true. That's so even, true. even from the obvious of just, you know, you inherited white privilege, right? If you break down in terms of like, you probably didn't have as much debt as the average black student does, uh, your your family might have been able to pass down a house that's been in their generation. Um, those are things. Those that's that's a stickiness to the wealth that Black people have, for the large part of America's history, have been excluded from. So even as we try to get this piece of the pie of wealth, we are still feeling the remnants of 400 years of exclusionary acts um, that have uh, prevented us from even building wealth. So. We're actually in a pivotal time now, and I, you know, I do want to talk about this in depth a little bit more in terms of what we're doing now that, that we're going to pass along to the next generation. That is the inheritance that we all will leave behind um, in our day-to-day actions and our day-to-day decisions. 
Yeah. I, I know I didn't give you a, a, a good a set definition, but if I had to, I would say the, the definition of generational inheritance is a collective transfer, transference of monetary assets, resources, values, and policies that could sustain across future generations. Right. There you go, revolutionaries. As you listen to that, think think about what the great Kelly Solney has just talked about, that, that, that inheritance piece, that, that the systems, all of the systems in place for us to be able to pass down. It's not just about the, the finances. It's, it's about those systems and policies and knowledge and, and understanding that we allow to pass down for that proliferation of growth. Kelly, as a part of Black history, you know, as we think about this and the, the vastness and greatness of who we are as a people and thinking about what we do at Camelback, you know, we're rolling out this in generational inheritance initiative uh, and next in line social media campaign on February 9th. Tell my revolutionaries more about that campaign and how they can be involved in this process. So the next in line campaign is a social media, what we're calling movement. It's no longer just, you know, just a, a campaign. Um, and what it's meant to do is put users uh, as the bridge, if you will, from our past generations to the future generation. So everything that we have gotten that we've inherited to this point is is thanks to those who came before us and particularly you know i can only speak as a black woman i mean what i have been given what i what has been passed along to me uh, from my ancestors is just you know like i said it's invaluable you know i i i tap into them every day just doing the work that i do but I also understand that because of what I've been given, what I've inherited, that it is um, my calling, my duty to make sure that the next generation has more than even what I had. You know, I always tell people, I don't want us to be the first generation that doesn't give the next generation more. Mm. Um, so the Next In Line campaign is meant to center users, you know, through an Instagram or just through a social media uh um, post that we're going to do a social media platform rather um, for people to declare what they want to leave behind to the next generation to the next generation but they're going to do that by honoring what they have inherited from past generations mm -hmm. so that could be an elder that could be a teacher that could be a community leader um, so forth and so on you're allowed to post as many as you want by all means please do <laughs> but it's this idea that we're all a linked legacy that um, that we're a collective. So we have to, we can't, you know, I always say we can't push the line forward until we acknowledge the long line of people that came before us. But it's also important that we are always thinking about the next in line and what they're going to inherit as well. I love that you think about the, the next in line, you know, lifting as we climb, you know, mm -hmm. think, thinking about that as we move and ascend, you know, in our spaces. And we are fortunate. And I want to just give a shout out to our wonderful founder, Aaron Walker, who, <laughs> Ultimately, as he as he climbs, right, he, he is pulling. He's been able to pull us, you know, pull founders right up and allow them to proliferate. You know, if you think about if you think about the work that he's done and the work at Camelback is that 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 generational inheritance, right, that knowledge and wisdom that has been being able, even finance that's been being able to be passed down to our founders, hopefully will allow them to uplift and proliferate their ventures where they continue to pass that down even further for everybody who wants to know more information about 
our generational inheritance initiative and our next in line social movement, make sure you go to camelbackventures.org uh, to check more about the campaign. As you said, February 9th, Kelly, is that correct? That's we launched. And um, just to put a fine point on that is camelbackventures.org slash inheritance slash inheritance you got that camelbackventures.org slash inheritance and i will make sure that i put that out on all of our social medias as we are a huge fan <laughs> i mean i work there <laughs> a huge fan of camelback ventures shout out to the entire team the entire team at camelback ventures that actually makes it go Kelly, I want to learn a little bit more about you, but it really tied into this movement that you actually, this is your revolution. I know I didn't ask you that question. I knew we would get there, but this is your revolution. This is what you do at Camelback. You know, your work is to proliferate this movement and, and as well as bring in partnerships for the organization, but you really take on this. You know, uh, I think about our Guardian Summit that we had last year that brought people in to talk about generational wealth and, and really begin this idea, this ideology of generational inheritance. But I want to bring this back to you. Tell me about someone who's passed something down to you that has positively impacted your life. And, and then how do, you, how do you plan to actually pass that down? Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm going to give two, if that's okay. So oh, um, that's, my, that's what we do at Camelback. We're always giving, <laughs> we're always giving two. Um, so my first, of course, is my foundation, which is my, my, par my, my parents. So what I inherited it excuse me, inherited from them is their work ethic, but their work ethic as it relates to their service to others. So my mom was a nurse and she loved being a nurse. She always wanted to be a nurse. My dad was a teacher and a basketball coach. He always wanted to do those two things. And he did those two things. Um, when I say work ethic, I didn't grow up in a house where anybody complained about going to work because they both loved what they did. So, you know, I, I, I have also been blessed to get up every morning to a job that I always lo love doing as well. And I, you know, I, I, I truly believe that's something that I got from my parents, that it's just not about the paycheck, but you have to work with purpose. Having said that, as I said, my mom was a nurse, my dad was a teacher. So both of those are, are, are careers that are really in service of others. You know, you have to be very selfless <laughs> to be a good nurse. You have to be very selfless to be a great teacher um, and, you know, and be very outside the boundaries, outside the lines. Um, so to that extent, I think I've always chosen career, a career path that allowed me to do the same, to work in, um, work in service of others. Even with, with Carol's daughter, I mean, we were a hair care company, but we were changing the conversation around black hair care and the value of black women. You know, we, we were, we were bigger than just that one little aisle that one a little shelf in <laughs> Walmart. You know, we, we, we were in Sephora. We were, you know, we, we made it mainstream. Um, and we bought not just black hair care, but just uh, black um, female, like just the culture, beautiful images on social media. Like we were one of the first people to really utilize social media in a big way. Um, so just producing and distributing beautiful images of, of black women and things of that nature. Um, that was something I could always be a proud, you know, really, really proud of. So, and now at Camelback, as I said earlier, you know, my whole, I am not successful if we are not successful as a company especially the fellows. So our destinies are definitely tied in that, in that aspect. So, and I do, and like I said, I think I just get that from my parents. 
Um, the second thing that this campaign, for whatever reasons, has really made me think about is um, I've had some really amazing Black teachers growing, <laughs> growing up, particularly in elementary school, which is so important. And what I think made them so amazing is they set a standard for me of excellence that um, as a child, you just need to, you just probably, you know, you just need to hear. So they set a high bar for me um, that I, I don't think I would have gotten in certain other settings the way I did. Um, and my, I went to McDonald 39 for anybody listening from New Orleans, you know, pre-Katrina uh, type school. But I had some really amazing Black teachers. And because of that, like I said, them setting a standard for me, you know, I hope that um, I pass along a, set, a service, I mean, a standard of Black excellence um, and Black education for Black educators, particularly with the work we do with Camelback for others. Um, it really, really illuminate the brilliance um, that lies in all of us. Yeah. You know, Kelly, that's interesting because I think about my family. I think about my mother and father and you know, the things that they have, you know, passed down to me, like you said, that work at work ethic, watching mom and dad go to work every day, not complaining, um, showing me what it was like to be successful. You know, I remember, I remember being in the car with my father and my good friend, Dr. Stacy Edwards at, you know, when we were in high school and my father asking us what type of diplomas we were going to get. And Stacy, Dr. Stacy at that time, said, I'm going to get an advanced degree. And um, I said, I'm just going to get a, a general diploma, right? <laughs> I was I was cool with that. <laughs> yes, revolutionaries. Dr. Corpru said he was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm good with that. You know, my father gave me this look, right? That, no, brother, you heard what, you heard what your friend said. You're going for that advanced degree. And from that moment on, I knew, right, there was th that look when when Big Charles gave you that look, Kelly, you know, you <laughs> you knew you were like, yeah. And so I made sure that I went for that advanced degree. And, you know, and so the, the, the things that they passed down just in their actions, right, sometimes not even in not even in the the, the verbiage, right, it's, it's a look that sometimes is the generational inheritance that you know that the things that you need to do because they have actually paved paved the way for you. Yeah, but your other the other side of your work, you know, you're working with Sino, uh, right? The um, and um, forgive me, Sean Barney, because <laughs> uh, please tell the world what Sino is. Oh, uh, the Campaign for Equity New of New Orleans. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we're a grassroots organization um, that's been around for about five years now. Our our vision is we want to make New Orleans the most equitable city in America. Uh, I serve as the campaign manager. To date, our claim to fame has been organizing around uh, uh, a race and equity training that we put on, um, that we that we partnered with the Racial Equity Institute to put on. But over the past five years, we've definitely grown. We've, we've trained about 1,500 wow. uh, regional leaders, city and regional leaders, uh, systems leaders, as we call them. So these are people in positional power, um, be it in an actual uh, business setting uh, uh, or such, or community leaders. So they range. Um, but we have an alumni base right now of about 1,500. Uh, we're looking to grow it to um, so about 25,000 over the next year. Wow. Uh, 
Oh, that's that's a whole nother cop. <laughs> <laughs> but I can I, I'll give you the, the snippet is um, basically opening up um, our communications beyond just the training. So basically building out more programming, building out more um, building out more marketing, um, especially in the digital world, more digital content and, and, get, and uh, excuse me building out more digital content to ensure that we can not only reach a wider audience, but engage and talk to a wider audience. So we have, that's, that's the top level, the top line answer to your question, but we do have um, some behind the scenes plans. I can't say everything right now, but we do have. It's all good. It's all good. And I appreciate the people, you know, people understanding um, the amazing work. And I am one of those alumni uh, of Sino and it really, it really opened my eyes, even as a, practitioner of uh, racial equity across the country at one point, you know, going to the training and being a part of that really opened my eyes. So thank you and Sean Barney uh, and the entire Sino team. But I want to bring it back to our conversation on generational inheritance, Mm -hmm. right? If you think about this from a a racial equity perspective, how does, how does your inheritance work? Yeah. Actually dismantle white supremacy and advance racial equity. So let, let me just use, let's use Katrina as an example and, and Sino and even Camelback for that matter, right? So I think Katrina is a great example of something that happened in our lifetime. Katrina is not, it, it, we just celebrated the, well not celebrated, but we just um, marked our 15 year anniversary last year. Mm-hmm. So you have a city that's destitute, right? In which... Black and brown people were extraordinarily impacted, negatively impacted more than white locals and white counterparts, right? So the last number I saw was about 160 billion would it be was put into economic damage and recovery um, funding for to, to basically build back New Orleans, right? So here we are 15 years later, now we're in the middle of another catastrophe. Yet the same people, the same group of people are being impacted. So at the very least, right? Even if you don't do this work day to day, the way you and I, one has to ask themselves, well, what does 160 billion get you if it doesn't get, (laughs) if it doesn't protect people in a way, um, you know, we can't, um, necessarily predict every catastrophe that's going to come, but we certainly can mitigate the damage that it can do to the people. Maybe not the infrastructure, but certainly to the the people who who occupy the city. I would think, right? We would so hope. we would hope, yeah, that. right? So at the very least, it, it raises the question: Well, what happens, right? So one of the things that I have been really focused on and we will be focused on with the Generational Inheritance Initiative is this idea. And, and we are we, we actually birthed this in uh, with the campaign for equity is this idea of what an equitable recovery should look like to ensure that no matter what catastrophe comes our way, that black people are not always so um, disenfranchised by the impact. Well, we know historically be it Katrina, you know, after um, the Great Depression, um, the Great Recession in 08, so forth and so on, that if there are racial disparities in the catastrophe, there are going to be racial disparities in the recovery. recovery. So 
what I have, what I am dedicated now to is what an equitable recovery will look like. Um, and I am using the generational inheritance campaign and building and basically building a community of allies and um, people who are focused on the same thing, um, as well as and doing the same work with the campaign for equity of New Orleans. I mean, obviously in New Orleans, we are focused on one city, whereas with Camelback, it's more of a national effort. But my dedication to an equitable recovery is the same because, again, Katrina was only 15 years ago and we're still feeling the remnants. Yes, we you know, got Mardi Gras back and we got the festivals back and everything. But we also live in a city where 50 percent of the black men are unemployed. Yeah. You know, New Orleans is the most incarcerated city in the most incarcerated state in the most incarcerated country. Um, the school system is subpar, to say the least, so forth and so on. So. Again, it, I don't think lack of money and investment in a recovery was the issue. <laughs> I think it's how we chose to build it back yeah. and how we chose to prioritize those um, is what really makes the difference. And I don't want that to happen again. I don't think New Orleans is sustained again. Let me just say that. But um, I don't want that to happen again from a local level like New Orleans or just um, America as a whole. And I'll also say to that point um, with the equitable recovery, you know, 15 years, like what, 15 years is not a long time. So like, not even a generation. What, you know, if you think about uh, a, a newborn, you know, they'll, that person, that child will be entering high school. They'll, you know, they'll be in the school system. What do we want them to inherit, you know, around them? You know, like 15 years, what do we want those next in line to inherit? So 15 years, so how we recover now, I think is the best case study of an inheritance that we plan on leaving behind. And everybody, everybody plays a part in that. That's not just activists. That's just, that's not community leaders. That's absolutely everyone because everything is being reshaped, right? How we work, the workforce is being reshaped. You know, healthcare is being reshaped. Everything is, is being reshaped. So as we do this, we have to be, highly, highly um, dedicated and intentional to who we are prioritizing. Because if not, people are just going to fall back right into the pecking order as they did before. You know, I, I agree with you, Kelly. I think what my revolutionaries are going to add, you know, say, make sure you ask this question. You know, this, this, this sounds great. Mm-hmm. But, but but how? You know, I think about this. I think about this from a housing perspective, right? And I'm seeing... Uh, I'm seeing a lot of brothers and sisters who are getting into or have gotten into or and or and or proliferating housing and and real estate. And one of the things that I've been seeing really on social media is is buying back the block mm-hmm. and the importance of us going back into our own communities. Right. And buying property. Right. Building those properties and then keeping those homes within the community, within our people, because you, as you know, you know, being a native New Orleanians and me living there for 15 years, many a times properties were released because of Katrina or taxes weren't paid. People came in and gentrified. I'm going to use gentrify. Use it on use it here on the show. Uh, gentrify the neighborhood. And then all of a sudden home prices go up and then, and, and, and we're not seeing us back in the neighborhood. And right. I think part of that generational inheritance is what you're talking about is us learning the processes of 
home ownership and real estate and real estate development that we can then pass that knowledge wealth, knowledge and wealth down to the next in line. So we're keeping homes and communities, you know, with that look like us, that they stay with us, but those home values are still creating value and creating wealth because we know that home ownership is one of the one of the the lineages to creating wealth in our country. So so in terms of the how, there's a lot of ways I can break that up, right? So I think the first thing people have to understand is it's unacceptable not to do anything. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be, you know, housing is one piece of it and it's an important piece, right? Like, I, you know, if you ask me um, to choose a fight, <laughs> you know, uh, affordable housing would probably be in my top uh, three picks. Um, but I think that there, um, I think this is, let me just say this. I think part of the, um, issue for lack of a better word is, you know, you and I do this work every day and we're around people who do this work every day. Our job is to challenge, right? These things. Most people's jobs is, is not to challenge. They're incentivized not to challenge these things. So I think part of what needs to happen is one how do you bring people who particularly have emotional connections to BIPOC communities um, but that aren't necessarily directly involved in advocacy work how do you bring them into the conversation in a way for them to say okay now you need to go back and do x y and z right let me uh, let me also say the how you know i think people get caught up on like the 10 step process to fix racism or inequities or whatever. I don't, I don't have that. You know, I just, I don't have that. So, you know, I always want to preface that by saying, you know, you are the solution. The people are the solution. I think, um, I think though, going back to my earlier point in terms of bringing other people in, you know, one of the things in 2020, uh, when, um, the racial protests and all the uprisings happened is I had a lot of black friends in corporate America who was just like, um, I want to do something. I just don't know what to do, you know, and I get it. Like the average black person does not have two years savings to go in their corporate, you know, in their meeting and get Nat Turner <laughs> with their boy, you know, like I, I get that, you know, I, I, I get that. I would never ask anyone to do that, but I do think that you do have to be courageous enough. And that's a word I use often to figure out what it's going to take to make your company anti-racist and really start pushing those boundaries and, and getting with the allies as much. It's just not okay. Because here's, see, here's the thing. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how much money you pass on to your child. If that is not fixed, that's the job that's going to be waiting for your child when, <laughs> when, when they get older. You know, I say the same thing when, when I talk to my guy friends. If you are in an office situation, a work setting where you see women getting um, disrespected uh, or minimalized or, you know, what have you, if you don't raise, if you choose to turn a blind eye on that, that's the job that's going to be waiting for your daughter or your sister. Right. Oh, that's the work. That's the workforce, rather the work setting um, that's going to be, you know, waiting for them. So it's not OK just to say that has nothing to do with you. We all play a part in this. So that's why I say it's not just um, a monetary thing. It's more about what are you leaving behind it, the environment as a whole. So I feel like I'm rambling a little bit now. So let me just bring it back full circle. But in terms of the how, you know, the first thing I tell people is you don't know what you don't know. 
So you have to start there in terms of what do you want to see happen? You know, one of the one of the the first principle of generational inheritance is aspirational hope. Mm. So that means you have to understand what you want and you have to believe that that's going to happen. And and as corny as that may sound, a lot of people don't, you know, oh, that reparations will never happen for black people or something like that. And I'm like, well, if you don't believe that and you're not willing to fight for that, it's not going to happen. So that that is that is to me the core. And, and Brian Stevenson's always starts, starts off with that is that you have to maintain hope. hope. You have to get proximate. You have to be willing to get proximate. Um, that's a big thing. That's a big piece of it as well. And again, you have to just um, have a good understanding of or an acceptance that you know you don't know what you don't know. Like as I tell people all the time, to I'm go out and to go out and find it. Yeah, I'm an evolving student. Right. And I think that's where we all are. Kel, just quickly talk about proximate for a second. What do you mean by that? People have to get proximate. I think you have to be willing to be in, um, willing to have difficult conversations with uh, people who may um, not want to hear what you have to say or, 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 or not even, you know, like you, you may have to raise your hand and say the thing. Um, that's one way you could get proximate. That's, you know, one way. The other thing is just kind of bridge building. You know, you're sitting and you've made it, so to speak. You, you're not looking behind, <laughs> looking back anymore. Um, so in terms of you may, I don't want to say you have a, a detachment necessarily, but you have to be willing to um, stay connected to everyone and you have to define your sex success based on how many people are successful behind you um in order to do that you have to get proximate to people who may not be successful right now um but in terms of being proximate to the how you get proximate to the issues i think um as you said you know obviously educate yourself but also be willing to have hard conversations you know when um with, with the campaign for equity last year, we did our second annual uh, race around the table where we asked everyone just to host a dinner um, around um, race and equity uh, with their friends and family. Yeah, you can host a dinner wherever in your house at a restaurant, so forth and so on. You would be surprised how many people don't want to bring the conversation in their house. Mm. You would be surprised at the, all the pushback. You get a little squeamish when you need to talk about race. Right. Right. So if you don't if you don't even want to have the conversation, how do you plan on being part of the solution? Yeah. yeah. Or what you get a lot is particularly for black people. Well, that's preaching to the choir. No, it's not preaching to the choir because we're not a monolith. (laughs) So you need to be able to also talk within your community to hear the voices of all. That's what I mean by getting proximate. No, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly, as we as we as we think about closing this out. You know, and and again, revolutionaries, as you think about this, this campaign will kick off on February 9th. Make sure that you go to camelbackventures.org backslash inheritance, correct? I want to make sure backslash inheritance. Uh, make sure that you are checking out all of Kelly Salney's work. Um, I'm just going to give a shout out really quickly to Style and Taste. Look, look, her pers- look, her personal venture. Make sure you check that out on Instagram and you can, you know, we, we could have another look. We could have a whole nother conversation about style and taste. Uh, make sure you're checking that out. Because I, I think about this. There are 
pillars that represent, you know, generational inheritance and there are pillars that represent policies and principles. If you had to sum up in three words the values we should pass along to ensure that this next in line movement is equipped to thrive, what are they? So can I can I can I preface that with something yeah, first? Go right ahead. Um, I'll give you the three words, but I want to preface this by saying something. I think right now we are in the moment that we're in in America is um, unprecedented in the sense of America is truly going through an identity crisis. Right. Because what we're seeing is white supremacy die uh, being challenged in a way that we haven't seen before. And America doesn't know what to do with itself without white. They can't divorce themselves from white supremacy. But white supremacy is dying. I mean, that's what you see what Stacey has done. You you know, you're seeing it day by day. Kamala. uh, Yeah. You know, Kamala, you know, Kamala. getting her in the VPC, so forth and so on, which is why they're fighting so hard. You know, that's why January 6th happened because they know it as well. So I haven't said that because that's another podcast in itself. (laughs) Yes, it is. On January 6th. But I do think America is going um, into an identity crisis. I think the longest democracy is 250 years, which the first attempt was, I think, Athens. And we're like at 240 something. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of due right now. Yeah, yeah. due for for something. So having said that, um, I think the future belongs to the creative and the courageous. So if I had to, I'll leave, I teed that up to say if I had to choose my three words, my three pillars, it would be creativity, courage, and um, spirituality. Um, I think if if we as a people get into get to the highest of heights in those three, the future is ours. Yeah, creativity. Say it one more time, Kel. Creativity, courage, and spirituality. There you go. As as we think about this, as you think about this, revolutionaries, as we as we think about this as a collective, as a collective of people, our generational inheritance can be a revolutionary movement to see change in our communities, to see change with in ourselves, to actually internalize the information and wealth and understanding that has been passed down to us. As my good friend Kelly Salney says, we're seeing things die and usually dying things are those things that actually kick hard, right? As they know, they're trying, they're trying to find ways to survive. We're seeing this virus trying to kick hard as we're trying to subside it and actually keep our communities. It is interesting that we talk about this generational inheritance because we have to pass down this knowledge about how to equitably recover from challenges like Katrina and COVID. It is a really, really interesting time for us revolutionaries, but if we galvanize ourselves together, if we think about passing on the knowledge, right? The understanding, the care, the compassion, the wealth that we can bring to our communities, we can see a change. And I'm very proud to call Kelly Solo my sister. This revolution that she is, that she is fostering that she is building that she is unearthing i still have to go back to my conversation with the great oliver thomas new orleanians the the conscious of new New orleans um is that we have been mired in the soil in new orleans and what happens when you're mired in the soil kelly is that you have the ability to soak up all the nutrients and what you've done is taking everything all of your knowledge all of your time sitting in the soil and now you're seeing the proliferation of your knowledge and move it 
your knowledge and as you move into this movement into your revolution so i'm excited to see how this movement goes as i say again revolutionaries check us out on all of camelback social media Check out camelbackventures.org backslash inheritance on February 9th and be a part of this revolution. Be a part of this movement. I hope that you are doing well. I hope that you find ways to celebrate black history, not only in February, but every day of every year. I wish you well. And as always, I ask that you be able to answer what we think here is the most thought provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? Take care. We'll see you next time. Peace, peace, peace. peace. Revolutionaries, Revolutionaries, what's good? What's good? What's good?